Welcome back, nature lovers, to another episode of the Birdie Bunch podcast. Uh, we're really excited to have you back. We're all hoping that you had a good week. And with that, let's get into it. Welcome back, nature lovers, to another episode of a of the Birdie Bunch podcast where we talk everything conservation, education, and fascination. My name's Brittany, and I'm joined by my two friends and co-hosts. I'm Matt. And I'm CJ. How are we doing this week, folks? I'm okay. I'm really tired. Uh, it's as of recording. Um, I'm going back to work this week um, from, from Thanksgiving break. So we're recording like a week ago, I guess. But um, I'm kind of tired, but I'm okay. I'm, I feel, I'm feeling pretty good, though. Yesterday, yesterday, as of recording, um, I saw a snowy owl here in Chicago, which was very exciting. So me Ooh. and good friend of the podcast, Jack Cross, went out, and we were kind of bummed. We went out twice and didn't see it. And we're out on the pier, and we're walking back, and we're like, oh, we didn't see it, whatever. And it's like just as the sun went down, so it's like dark, dark. And we're walking back to the car, and all of a sudden, we see something pretty big and something pretty quiet flying over the beach, then going over the water. And that was, in fact, the snowy owl. So we got a glimpse of it, which was very, very exciting. That's so exciting. I'm so jealous. I miss yeah. Chicago. Can't I'm get that in stupid I'm misery. Hopeful. <laughs> I'm hopeful they stick around all winter, Brittany. So when you're back, we can go. Yes. Apparently a male and female have been reported and they've been here for almost a week so far. So Ooh. very exciting. Matt, how are you this week? Just chilling. It's officially exam season. So that's, yeah. And I'm a student and a teacher. So yeah. Matt, I, got... I definitely was expecting you to just be like, just chilling and then just be completely silent. I was just thinking, yeah. Man, nah, it's just just chilling. It'll be soon done soon though. Gang gang. Close gang, to winter break. Gang gang, absolutely. Brittany, how are you this week? I am actually doing pretty fantastic. I've had lots of fun and exciting things happen this week. Um, from like this week is what we're recording. My family was in town and we went and saw the St. Louis Zoo Zoo Lights and that's always super fun. It was my first time. I've wanted to do it since college and just never had the time. And so we went and it was beautiful and exciting. And then um, I'm getting my poison dart frogs in in literally a day. So there's lots of fun and exciting things happening. That's so exciting. You'll have to share with the nature lovers some pictures of your frogs once you get them in. They can just head on over to that Instagram that Ooh. I will plug later. Ooh, stay tuned. No stay spoilers. Tuned. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. <laughs> stay tuned. Uh, the Birdie Bunch podcast. Spoiler. B is in Victor. No, Spoiler. stop. Stop. <laughs> um, Brittany, what's our first segment this week? Well, we are going to, I think, go ahead and now that we all know how each other's doing, we're going to head on over to our creature feature. Right? Or is it? No, it's it's absolutely a creature feature. You got it. You know I it. was like, I couldn't. I was like, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Oh, you got it. Mm-hmm. 
Our creature feature that we are featuring this week is none other than uh, the North American River Otter. And so the North American River Otter, just like their name might suggest, is found all across North America. They've got a range from Florida all the way up into Canada. But they're really cool and it's really exciting because there are some differences between North American River Otters that are going to be found down in Florida versus those that are found in Canada. And that's going to be their size. North American River Otters that are found in Florida are actually going to be a little bit smaller, averaging between 20 to 25 pounds, versus those that are found in Canada that are going to be a little bit on the bigger side. They're going to hit about 30 to 35 pounds, and that's all because of weather. Florida gets hot and muggy. The less you've got, the less you got to cool down. For or Canada can get pretty, pretty chilly. And so the more you got, the easier it is to keep warm. And so they tend to be a little bit bigger. And so that's pretty special. Um, North American River Otters, uh, here in my uh, new state of Missouri, I mean Missouri, um, actually uh, can be found in every single county in Missouri. And that's actually because at one point, North American River Otters were endangered. And that was because due to overhunting, people were using them to hunt um, or to using them for hats and coats and things like that. So there was a bunch of conservation initiatives which are really special and now their populations are doing really well. And so uh, for me personally, I love North American River Otters. I work with a few and they are definitely really cool, but always like to respect their space because they have a pretty strong bite. They can actually crunch through a turtle like a taco. They use that really powerful jaw to be able to eat uh, different fish and birds and things like that. And so I think we've swimmingly enough covered that uh, North American River otter. And so yeah, we're going to head utterly on. fantastic. <laughs> Thanks. I, <laughs> River. And we can, uh, we're going to go ahead and go on over and cover some nature in the news. So my current event comes from Manga Bay titled, You Can't See Them to Count Them, But Amazonian Manatees Seem to Be Recovering. And this was published on November 26, 2021. And so essentially what we've got is really exciting news. You know, there's three species of manatees across the world. We in the United States are familiar with the West Indian manatee, which is the one that shows up in the Florida Keys, you know, the ones that hit by boats a lot. It's kind of sad. But there's also an Amazonian manatee. Um, and these manatees were really, really intensely hunted from the 30s to the 50s before they were kind of put up for protection. Um, the reason that these manatees were hunted is because they were hunted for meat and oil really, really regularly, um, commercially, in fact, back then. Um, since then, they are only hunted locally uh, for subsistence, so it's a really big difference. And, you know, an important distinction to be made when we're talking about conservation of species that are hunted by locals versus by large corporations there's a huge huge difference between the two that is important to recognize however you know once that hunting was um as it was going on uh amazonian manatees started 
to learn to hide from humans to preserve themselves. So they've already blended in and have a tendency to blend in really well. They're kind of like a darker manatee. They also express exhibit counter shading a little bit as well, which is kind of fascinating. They've got a lighter belly. Um, in fact, they've got a lot of like white splotching on their belly, but then like a darker gray, which kind of blends into the murkiness of the Amazonian uh, river. But they learned to hide from humans and would only use their nose to breathe when hunting was uh, used for all those things, as well as industrial application back then, which is where it was really becoming a problem. They would be hunted for hoses and transmission belts and pulleys and loom parts, which is bizarre. But they were protected as their population crashed. And now people are finding that they are returning. Local communities all agree that the population is recovering. Now, the interesting part about that is that the, the controversy comes from the fact that because they're so good at hiding, people can't really tell um, in traditional manners. You can't really go out when something's below the surface and kind of just view it from a helicopter or kind of tracking potential isn't there. And so what scientists have been doing is using secondary um, tracking, whether it's fecal matter or plant consumption, signs of that. Um, they're seeing it grow as the years go by, which as a proxy, they are now able to denote and confirm that their local populations are going up which is really, really, really exciting, um, especially because with how slowly these mammals reproduce, the fact that you are seeing a increase is really, really important. Um, there have been a lot of programs that have gone through with release, you know, is similar to what we have with the West Indian manatee where ones that are injured are set back into the wild, they're rehabilitated, um, they have captive, um, uh rehabilitation programs where they nurse young ones to adulthood all really really important programs to releasing these species back into the wild because they're so slowly breeding that a lot of times losing one or two can be a big big hit to a local population when you have 10 or 15. Um, and so these manatees are hard to find but it's hard not to find inspiration in their story and so that, my friends, is my current event. Wow. I love a manatee current event. No spoilers for next week, but manatee am I excited? Nailed it. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> that hurt. Yeah, I, I can imagine. I, can imagine. I, I felt pain. <laughs> I'm in distress. It's understandable. Well, you might be in more distress, Matthew, when you find out where my current event is from. My current event this week comes from the Moscow Times. What? That's correct. Not the New York Times, not the not Chicago Times. The Moscow Times. Huh. In an article written by... <laughs> uh, doesn't even say who the article's written by. By Moscow. <laughs> Anyway, the article from the Moscow Times is titled First Endangered Tiger Footprints in 50 Years Found in Northeast Siberia, which is really exciting. So Amur Tiger Footprints have been discovered in the Northeast Siberian Republic, 
of Saka for the first time in 50 years, which is a signal that the endangered species of the Amur tiger is in fact recovering. The state-run TASS news agency reported this this past Tuesday, just a couple of days ago, on November 24th. Russia's Forest Protection Service found the rare footprints on the right bank of the Aldan River in southeastern Saka, where zoologists say Amur tigers find it difficult to gain. Where zoologists say Amur tigers find it difficult to gain a foothold due to lack of deciduous forests and wild boars. The tracks signaled the very first tiger entry into this area in the 21st century even in the last half century, which Viktor Nikiforov, head of the Tigris environmental charity, <laughs> told the TASS, the Amur tiger, also called the Siberian tiger, is a protected species in Russia after hunting brought the big cat to the brink of extinction in the mid 20th century. And thanks to ongoing conservation work, the tiger's population in Russia's far east has grown from 333 tigers in 2005 to over 600 tigers today. And the fact that they are still exploring their ancestral hunting grounds indicates that the number of tigers is not as much of a cause for concern as they thought that it was, which is very, very exciting. That tiger populations are growing in in uh, eastern Russia. So what are your thoughts on Russian tigers? Good news. Bizarre delivery method. Thank you. Russian newspaper. I like it. How about you, Brittany? What do you think? I am so happy, CJ, that you have shared that current event. It was a great current event. And um, I'm just going to have to look more into it because it's really fascinating. Thank yeah, you I think we're so all going to have much. to look into it. We, we really, I mean, Moscow Times may or may not be a trustworthy source. <laughs> <laughs> so my current event comes from the white nose syndrome response team um dot or it's white nose syndrome.org um but the title of the page is white nose syndrome response team and um the title of the the articles reads white nose syndrome challenge for fight the fungus save our bats and so we've talked a little bit here on the podcast before about white nose syndrome um i believe there was an, even an episode we were talking about vaccines and we were talking about how those would be administered and things like that and we use the white nose fungus as an example and this article actually talks about how there's some hope now in this battle to to find a solution to the white nose fungal disease um and it comes from a research team in oregon state university and at UC Santa Cruz, and they actually won this, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service's National Prize Challenge um, by coming up with this idea of an aerosol spray to genetically silence the fungus that causes the disease without actually harming any of the bats or the places that they hibernate or any of the things that are, that's living around them. And so it's in the early... It's in the early uh, research stages, um, but um, they're starting to develop it and trying to add additional research to be able to actually pinpoint exactly how to do it using this aerosol method. Um, and there's some hope, and hopefully that those that continued research and things uh, pan out, and there might. Oh, hopefully be a solution to saving our bats. 
Love it. Very wildly good positive news. Very I'm not baddie. Nailed it. Hmm? Look at me winging these, awesome. Look at me this winging a, these jokes. This is another <laughs> one that causes pain, CJ. <laughs> <laughs> I would have hoped you could have echolocated a potential ability to stop, however. Matt, you are just on fire today. Yeah. Yeah. Matt, you are the, on fire. It's yeah. It's Ouch. Burn. Yes. Matt is on fire. Very good. Man. I definitely said bat. <laughs> oh, you said Matt. <laughs> Just burn them. Make like bow and burn them. All right. Well, thank you, Matt and CJ, for your awesome Nature in the News articles. And with that, we're really excited to head over uh, to our interview with Matt and Sarah from Zoo Enrichment Lab. Let's head on over. <laughs> Today, we are so excited to be joined by two amazing people who have uh, started a really cool company that I'm going to let them kind of explain and introduce. Um, but uh, first, I'd like to start having you guys introduce yourselves, just names and kind of a little bit about your guys' selves. I'm Sarah Feliciano, and I use uh, she, her pronouns. And uh, I'm an artist, fabricator, uh, wildlife enthusiast, you know, just kind of nature nerd, art nerd. Cool. I'm Matthew, and I answer to anything. I'm also an artist and uh, have worked now with Sarah for uh, quite some considerable amount of time. I'm equally uh, an animal enthusiast and I'm originally from Wyoming, where there are actually more animals than there are human beings. So that's a, that's a positive thing right there. Yeah, I didn't. I actually didn't know that about you. That's really cool. Um, yep. How did you and uh, Sarah, Sarah, how did you and uh, Matthew meet? Um, well, I worked at uh, Brookfield Zoo um, in the exhibits department, and I had started back in 2000. And uh, somewhere along that time, Matthew kind of, um, well, his wife actually worked in the library and made the introduction. And um, yeah, what year did you start at the zoo, Matthew? I think it was, I think it was 2007 that I, I started. Yeah, and we just worked together uh, kind of as a team and uh, built animal habitats and environments, painted murals um a few parade floats and whatever <laughs> halloween shows britney <laughs> um a lot of special events and uh kind of art related uh exhibitry for animals we slowly developed into sort of specialists of a particular kind of need and uh, developed a reputation for doing that which the rest of the department really didn't do so we became kind of the the go-to people especially for naturalized enrichment plus we were and basically still are muralists and we still do murals as well as everything else that we're working on um, so now and covid covid uh lost us our jobs and the zoo laid off an awful lot of people so sarah and i simply decided to decided it was a sign from God that we should just open our own business. 
that well i think everybody is kind of happy that you guys did um do you guys want to explain kind of what that business is and kind of introduce that sure sarah you take that um yeah so we started a zoo enrichment lab and basically it's um we're providing natural looking enrichment for zoo animals and aquariums and um custom made furniture and habitat items um so it's modern zoos are not just trying to make sure that animals are healthy they're also wanting animals to be happy and that's kind of where this specialty enrichment stuff comes in um it's we're really their animal caretakers are really wanting to devote time and energy to making sure that animals are mentally and physically engaged in their environments. And so we've kind of developed um, dozens of different devices, whether they're puzzle feeders or modified time feeders or um, different strategies that help animals um, provide the animals opportunities to do natural behaviors. So, you know, if an aardvark wants to dig, um, if they're in a zoo environment, sometimes that can be hard because you don't want an animal to uh, dig out of their environment. Um, so how do you provide these animals opportunities uh, to exhibit these natural behaviors? So that's kind of where we've um, started inventing things. Yeah, and, we, and, you know, nationwide, actually globally, zoos have all recognized the fact that uh, an animal um, that is sort of mentally engaged in its environment is explicitly a healthier animal anyway. And that probably the best way to prevent stereotypic behavior of, of pacing or napping all day or over-grooming is to provide appropriate stimulus that speaks to the the wiring that's already in the animal. So the secret is to figure out, relying on, of course, the experts that deal with the animals, to figure out those things that we can do, which will the animal will instantly understand and immediately start doing. And there's a huge variety of what animals can and will do with their environment if they're given the opportunity to do it. That's awesome. It's super cool to hear kind of, um, both of your histories as people and kind of uh, how that's bled into a little bit. But how specifically did Zoo Enrichment Lab start? Where, what's the story behind kind of um, how this all came to be? Um, I think just stubborn determination. Um, <laughs> you know, um, we when we were in the um, exhibits department, there was a need without a solution and um, for this natural looking um, devices. And I think that enrichment always existed in zoos and, and animal caretakers always took care of their animals, but a lot of times they'd give them maybe a red shiny ball or the polar bears, you might have seen them with like beer kegs in their pools that they love to um, manipulate around like as if they were iceberg. And so that stuff existed, but it just doesn't look nice. And when you're spending millions and millions of dollars to make these things look, these, these environments look so natural, that's where we were coming in. And we saw this need of, you. we needed to camouflage items and we kind of invented a, a, a dialogue and kind of a vocabulary of how to do that. Um, and when our jobs were you know, eliminated, 
it's such a passion for both Matthew and I. We we work so closely with the caretakers and the animals to learn their individual preferences and personalities. Um, it's it was heartbreaking to to no longer do the work that we loved, and so that stubbornness of just like no, we want to keep doing this. Um, and what better thing to do while you're quarantining but learn how to run a business? <laughs> and it's important to point out too that we already had a national uh, reputation to a certain extent, an international reputation because we had hosted people from zoos all over the country and all over the globe into our workshop at the zoo and talked about the materials that we worked with and the methodologies that we used and the strategies that we were using for the different species. Um, and for a brief while, the zoo was actually selling our items to other zoos as a sort of mini uh, um, fundraising thing, um, which was very popular. I, but that meant that not only were we disappointing the keepers at Brookfield Zoo when we were no longer around, but there were people all over the country who still wanted our things. So it was sort of self-evident that we should simply turn around and start making the work ourselves. And it's turned out to be a pretty good decision to make because now we have complete and utter control over when we're producing, what we're producing, how we're getting it out to people and how we're interacting and talking to people from all of these zoos. Because there used to, of course, be a hierarchy that we had to kind of respect. And now we have our own hierarchy and it's, it's, it's been really awesome. We talk to zoo directors. We talk to people who are behaviorists. And of course we talk to keepers uh, all the time and they all have different ideas. And many of them are interesting to us and valid. And we, try our level best to realize what it is they need. We've always said that typically we're approached with one of two things. We're either approached with a request about behavior that people want to encourage or behavior that they just soon not encourage in a zoo animal. And the result is usually the coming up with the same thing um, in the best of circumstance they have negative behavior that they just assume not see which is both bad for the animal bad for the keepers and bad for the public um, but then when the animal gets pretty conscientious uh, collection of things that are enrichment from us their life improves all the way around we have improved the breeding uh, behavior of animals. We've improved their diets. We've improved the way they enter. If it's a herd animal, they, the way they interact with one another, all by virtue of the different tactics that we and devices that we provide them with. It's been really interesting. I may have gone on too long about that, but <laughs> no, you definitely, you definitely didn't go on too long. If anything, we want more. Um, and okay. to kind of get to that more, um, can you guys talk to just like some things that like inspire you to continue to keep doing this. Obviously you have a passion for it. So what continues to inspire you? Um, I, I think just wanting to do better, to challenge myself and to improve the lives, of course, the lives of animals, but also the people who care for them. Um, yeah. Their, their, their lives and, and jobs are really hard and important. And, and so if we can do something that makes their lives a little bit easier, 
um, that then trickles down to the animal that they care for. I mean, that's that's why we're all here. You know, nobody goes into this profession to make a million dollars. We're all here just spinning around on this planet trying to do a little bit better and leave it a little better than when we found it. Um, and, you know, making art for animals is kind of what's always driven me. It was what I was doing in art school and it confused a whole lot of people. They didn't quite understand what art for animals was. And I don't even know if I knew what that meant either. Um, and I knew I needed to be at a zoo environment and to be around animals and, you know, doing this and, um, you know, COVID wasn't going to stop, you know, um, and just because we all had to quarantine and hunker down, the animals were still at the zoo and they still needed to be cared for. And um, people were, even though there weren't visitors in the parks, um, you know, the quality of care had to be maintained. So it was really kind of heartbreaking to leave projects on the table, you know, but we're just, I think we're here just to do things and help help everyone do their jobs a little better and make everybody just the simple, it's kind of a really hokey, cheesy, <laughs> you know, kind of the Disney answer, but um, yeah. Well, and, and you know, the, the truth is what, what I discovered when I started working in the zoo, which is something I'd never, I think I knew it, but I never really took it to heart is that an animal in a zoo is not a pet but it's also not a wild animal. It's wired as a wild animal, but most of the zoos that you that you visit nowadays, the animals are several generations removed from ever being in the wild. Unless they're an animal that's injured or blind or incapable of being re-released, they are animals that were bred in zoos and, and have been moved around from zoo to zoo. And they, so their life is a zoo life, even though they basically are a wild animal so we can't take them home we can't sleep with emus even though we might think that would be fun um but it is up to us as their caretakers to do as much as possible to facilitate the needs that they have sort of like i say sort of wired into them um which makes it different than making toys for pets um, in, in casual conversation, we tell people that we make toys for zoo animals, but it's probably pretty obvious that it's way more than just making toys for zoo animals. Um, it's, it's taking on their entire, um, biology and accepting what it is and knowing that we have a responsibility to, uh, to react to it and to respect it and to try to enhance it. Just like, just from personal experience, having worked with you guys and getting to see the work um, affect not only myself but some of the animals that I've taken care, like taken care of, it's amazing what the both of you do and how in tune you are, not only with the animals themselves but with keepers. And on a keeper end of things, how appreciative I know we are um, for you guys because what you guys have done and created has just been so amazing and inspiring themselves because, you know, I know keepers I've talked to you guys and after you guys have left, we're in a conversation for hours after talking about, okay, remember what Matt and Sarah said, like, how do we make this better? How do we improve this? And right. so it's what you guys do has been so inspiring. 
Yeah. Well, thank you so and, much. And, and, and thank you. That's a good point. And it's also true that there is no industry that does this. There are a few places that produce enrichment for for zoo animals and for large uh, um, hoof stock and all of that. But for the most part, they sort of generalize and come up with a device which um, both an elephant and a and a Arabian horse might want to play with or kick around the yard. The the beauty of Saren and my position is that we get to take on the specifics of a species, address that, and in fact, the specifics of an individual. Uh, we might have six uh, okapis that we're working with, and one of them loves stainless steel and the other ones don't. So we can produce something for that one particular animal. Um, and and a, a generalized uh, industry is not capable of addressing that sort of thing. So that's, that's another part of what we've done that's been really, really interesting mm-hmm. is that we get to find out uh, the incredible variety of the psychology of animals in zoos. And that's super true. It's like we we kind of set welfare standards for a species, but we measure like welfare and happiness on the individual level. Um, and that's that's super important. And not just on the, you know, the individual animal that we're caring for, but also the, the, the humans. Um, there's a lot of personalities um, in a work group and so one of the, how do I say this really delicately, um, but one of the ways that we've been most successful is by bringing the work, acknowledging all the needs of all the individuals in a work group. And that may have, like, if there's someone really short, someone really tall, something has to work for both the tallest person in the group and the shortest person in the group. Because if somebody can't yeah. reach and they're not going to grab a ladder and it's too challenging and hard then we can build the coolest thing in the world but if it doesn't get used then it's not going to help the animal so it's really everybody's important and it's and it's not just asking you know the manager or the curator what do you want um it's it's talking to a team and getting input from everybody on the team and really having that everybody's voice is important to us because we, you know, Matthew and I were both have art degrees. So everything that we've learned about okapis and wombats and uh, kookaburras has been from the experts and we just kind of absorb that information. And so when we sit down into a work group, um, we want to know everybody's perspective and you know, and, and what is the personality of that animal? And we're all making our best guess because these animals can't tell us what they want. So we have to rely on, you know, the people who see them day to day to say, oh no, this, this animal loves grapes. This monkey loves grapes and will do anything for grapes. And, you know, so then we have to design around that. Um, Yeah, that's all very true. And it's and it's it's introduced us to fascinating people all across the country who are even more crazy about animals than we are. You know, you've made a couple mentions about a lot of different you know projects that could be attributed to certain species or something like that. And we were kind of wondering, do you have any particular favorite projects 
that zoo enrichment lab has specifically worked upon or that maybe you've worked upon in the past when you were at the zoo as well? Well, we've had really interesting encounters with, uh, you know, with successes that, that even surprised the people who originally asked for it. We had, we had uh, a problem with the otters at Brookfield zoo who were incredibly neurotic in this. They had an enormous environment that they could be swimming around in and they didn't, they just hung out at the back door and screamed and pounded at the door. And it was, it was negative in every possible respect. The animals weren't happy. The public couldn't see them. The keepers were stressed out. Um, one of the animals was self-grooming so much that he licked um, all the hair off of one side of, of her haunch. And we came up with a strategy of putting time feeders on their, on their waterway um, in several different locations, three different locations, so that um, they had to swim from device to device to get a treat. Um, a pretty simple thing, in fact, possibly even axiomatic, but nobody had done it yet. Um, they, they hadn't thought of doing it that way. And we saw almost instant improvement in all of that behavior. All of a sudden, they were exercising more. They were interacting with one another more. They were using the totality of their environment. They were not pounding at the back door any longer. And the animal that had been self-grooming stopped that behavior. And the fur grew back, surprisingly white, but it still grew back. Um, and so we, we lauded that as a major um, success. And we learned a great deal about it. We learned that part of the strategy of spreading it out so the animal just can't predict one place where it gets one reward, um, but in fact involves the entirety of the environment um, was probably the single most important thing that we did. But it was complicated because we had to come up with a device which not only delivered chunks of fish uh, throughout the day, but was refrigerated so that the fish wouldn't rot as it was uh, uh, on exhibit every day. So we had to not only come up with the device, but we had to come up with a methodology to encase it in ice packs so that it uh, um, was adequate for the, the needs. And what it meant was that the keepers could load those machines and the animals would have that stimulus available to them 24 hours. The keepers didn't have to be there. And we liberated the keepers from... Um, necessarily always having to check on the animals and feed them at a particular time. And we liberated the animals from thinking that food was a result of a uniform and a jingle of keys. Well, <laughs> I don't know. It's a great story. Um, you know, one of, one of my kind of success stories that kind of blends between human and animal, there is a, um, a, Ben the orangutan had a um, he, he, he was sick and he had to have a procedure and the staff was really worried and concerned for him and I didn't you know I wasn't privy to all of the details of things I just know that this was happening and so I kind of had we had an extra um, device laying around like a lick board um, a bark board that you smear I don't know, peanut butter, yogurt or something. And, and the animals kind of have to pick and worry and, and um, all the crevices and such. And Matthew and I are kind of 
you know, we, we secretly love to do like ding dong ditch um, gifts on people's doorsteps just to kind of, you know, a little bit of bribery, but, you know, and so we kind of did a, a ding dong ditch for Ben just as a get well present. And um, weeks later, I didn't even realize how big of an impact that little thing had, but I had heard through the grapevine that Ben's caretaker was really worried, like, okay, he's, he went through his procedure and it was successful, but she was really stressed about um, how he would, he had a long recovery and he had these sutures and orangutans are kind of famous for picking. Um, and that was a big worry. And she just saw this new bark board. She smeared it with some food and clipped it to the front of his, um, his enclosure. And, and he just, sat all day very quietly and and picked and you know when it was empty she kind of smeared some more stuff on it and she just had this big moment of relief of like okay this is this is gonna work we can do this where this is gonna happen and um it was a really touching story and it's it's those things that make your heart warm and it's like okay you don't you know you're doing good and you know that you're trying to you're there for the right reasons but then you don't always hear i mean matthew and i we you know, we install something and then we leave and it's up to the other staff to implement it and to see the long-term results. But so we don't always hear those stories. And um, it's really, that was a really touching one that's kind of close to my heart. And um, Matthew yeah. did, a, to make it all, you know, super squishy, um, Matthew actually bought me a um, painting from one of the silent auctions that Ben had done. So I've got that at my house and it's, it's hard not to think of him when I see it. Cause it's like a three foot large painting. <laughs> well, of course. And well yeah. done too. It's a very good painting. Yeah. He's very smart. Yeah, a painting, we'll give, I'll give you one more uh, um, brief story and we'll talk about other stuff if you'd like to. But when I really, when I started at the zoo, I was principally hired as a muralist because there was a, a big demand for murals. And one of our very first projects that where Sarah and I realized that we were kind of onto something is uh, the giraffe staff um, had a problem with the giraffes licking major sections of the mural off of their habitat every single year. I mean, many feet. Um, and they had tried several things like, um, you know, sour apple flavoring and, and other things to get them to stop licking, but they just licked the mural off. Um, which meant we had to deal with that at least the first year. I think we touched up the mural, filled in a lot of the spaces, and within a year we had to go back. But then Sarah and I came up with several devices. Some of them were puzzles where the animal had to work out a treat. Um, um, some of them were time feeders where the treat was delivered at an unexpected time. Some of them were just tactile things because giraffes are very about very much about their tongues and anything that they could put in their mouth and and roll around they enjoyed and lo and behold they stopped licking the murals so we benefited from it because it meant we didn't have to go back and do that over and over again the animals benefited because it gave them a variety of things to do to to um fulfill that lick impulse and of course the public benefited immensely because the animals were no longer on the back wall licking imaginary trees, but they were. we could put these devices right down in front so they, the animals were closer to the public and they could appreciate them at a greater rate. So that taught us a lot. We learned a lot about that experience. Um, and basically, we had come up with it. The, the 
keepers had suggested a couple of things, but we were the ones who came up with several of the devices, which just worked like a charm. I'm frequently asked when I, when I tell people what I do, one of the most common questions that they ask me is what's the smartest animal you've ever worked with and what's the dumbest animal animal you've ever worked with. And the, the smartest is a difficult question because it depends on how you're defining intelligence Certainly dolphins are very, very intelligent. Bats are great problem solvers. Spider monkeys are great problem solvers. Most of the big apes are are interesting to stimulate. And without a doubt, unequivocally, the stupidest animal we've ever worked with are human beings. Because they just don't, they both don't know how to ask for stuff. They don't know what to expect from stuff. And they really think that animals are going to behave a particular way because the animals owe it to them. We we know that that isn't so. I um, uh, I just want to say real quick. I, I love hearing all of these stories. It literally like brings the biggest <laughs> smile to my face. I'm a big nerd about all this kind of stuff. So I really appreciate um, you both sharing these fun <laughs> stories. Yeah. Um, we're we're about at time. But before we kind of wrap up, maybe plug social media. Is there anything else you guys want to say before we plug social media? Um. I don't know. I just, I, I love what you guys are doing. Um, I'm really grateful you guys have us on and um, I don't know, just spread the good, you know, Um, we're all, we're all in this together and we're all here supporting one another and um, just trying to make things better and a little bit brighter. And, you know, things are so hard for everybody right now. Um, Just like hanging out and chatting with you guys. Thanks for having us. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you again for being here. Um, before we let you both go, um, how about we just take some time, let you plug where people can find you on social media or if you have a website or something? Yeah, um, zooenrichmentlab.com. Zoo that's our website. Um, we've got an online store. Um, you can shop around. It's the holiday time. If you want to get your wish list on for your zoo or aquarium, um, you can give us a call. Um, and of course, you know, Facebook, Instagram, we're at Zoo Enrichment Lab. So give us a shout, give us a follow. Please. <laughs> I know I already follow you guys. I know the Birdie Bunch already follows you guys. So all mm-hmm. of our nature lovers definitely should go do that. Um, thank you both for being here. It's been so wonderful to speak to you. And uh, we'll cut back to the rest of the episode now. Thank you hey, all for Carrie, being here. Great work. Thank you guys so thank much for you. coming on. Once again, we just like to thank Matt and Sarah for coming along onto the the podcast and chatting with us. Um, it's always a really great conversation, and the work that they do is so inspiring. So um, I'm just going to plug their stuff just one more time. Um, go check out the Zoo Enrichment Lab at zoo, uh, zooenrichmentlab.com. Um, it's pretty cool. And so again, thank you. Um, but that kind of wraps us up here for the podcast. But if you liked what you heard and would love to uh, to tell us how much you loved it, if you, uh, go ahead and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, whatever your listening platform is. And if you give us a five-star review, we'll read it out loud here on the podcast. Um, but it's a really great way for us to be able to 
here if you guys of what you guys are enjoying and being able to make a better podcast for you all. If you don't want to do that, or and slash or, I guess, um, you could tell your friend and your neighbor uh, and the random guy across the street that always says hi uh, <laughs> all about our podcast for us to, you know, keep gaining followers and getting all of our stuff out. But you can find us all. And when you tell the guy across the street, you tell him that you can find us um, at the Birdie Bunch Podcast on Instagram, as well as at the Birdie Bunch Podcast.com. Um, there, there's going to be all of our merch store and things like that. Um, we've got really cool merch. If you love our stuff and you get get your merch, you can also, you know, upgrade a little bit and join us on Patreon. Become one of our patrons. Um, big shout out to Gabe Andrele, who is currently our patron. Um, when you join our our Patreon. Um, you can get a shout out here on the podcast. So Gabe's Gabe's been awesome and has been here since August. So we we love and appreciate you, Gabe. And you do. There are different tiers, however. So you can either just get a shout out here on the podcast. There's different tiers where you could potentially get a whole bonus episode or see the chaos that is our uh, podcast when we record. Um, and it's always a fun time. You can find me on Instagram at Matt Valiga. That is M as T T V is in Victor A L I G A. You can find me on Instagram at the Brittany underscore bunch T H E B R I T T A N Y underscore B is in Brichter U N C H. Oh no! You already met. What you already went, Matt? You messed up. And you can find me on the Instagrams as well at cj.greco. That's cj.g as in Grichter, R-E-C-O. And if I continue to see that snow, and if I continue to see that snow, y'all, maybe I'll take a picture of it. Anyway, um, I really am excited about this episode. <laughs> and hopefully this episode will enjoy that for everybody. Um, <laughs> One of the reasons that I'm laughing is because Matt muted me in the middle of my sentence and then I removed him from the call and I'm not expecting him to come back because we're at the end of the recording. So anyway, have a great day, everybody. Have a good week. And Brittany, say the thing. Brittany, say the thing. Say the thing, Brittany. We'll catch you next time. Bye. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Birdie Blunch podcast. We would like to thank Sarah Dunlap for designing our logos, Elliot High for being our writing and production assistant, and Connor Whitman for being our music producer. The mission of the Birdie Bunch podcast is to inspire an inclusive community for conservation by using education to promote fascination. <laughs> so mad. So mad. He's not coming back. No. <laughs> not a... I didn't expect him to. <laughs> I'm going to call him back. Oh, never mind. He's here. Hi, Matt. Are you there? What? <laughs> Matt, can you, can you hear me, Matt? No. <laughs> I hate this so much.
Um, so we ended the recording, but I wanted to keep the recording going because you had any comebacks you wanted to say. <laughs> it's very clear on an audio platform. Anyway, catch you next time. Matt, say, Matt, say catch you next time. Catch you next time.